thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Continuing our study of the book of Genesis, we are now starting chapter 2. What I want to do first is read it and point out some of the questions we may have about this chapter. We may not be obvious when we read it the first time. And then go back and see how far we can get into it. Uh, Naturally, uh, being the eternal optimist, I've prepared to complete the whole chapter today. Um, We'll see how that's going to go. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, it because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Clearly, uh, verse 4 points out the purpose of the book, generation. Uh, uh, Obviously, in this particular instance, it's not talking of generation as in uh, heaven and earth procreating, but rather as in uh, proceeding from God. Uh, Do note the thrice repetition of the number 7. Verse 2, on the seventh day, beginning of the verse, end of the verse, on the seventh day, and beginning of verse 3, on the seventh day, Uh, 777, which of course stands in contrast with the number 666. I'll be more to say about that in a a while. Uh, Verse 4, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, note the inversion, uh, very peculiar, the normal expression is the... um, the heavens and the earth, in this specific instance, it's inverted, the earth and the heavens. Um, We'll come back to this. When no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. Um, This is always or often a, uh, a, a verse that brings confusion when compared to the previous account of creation, because you might go, but wait a minute, what do you mean no plant of the field was yet? We've heard that in creation plants came before man, so what's going on here? We'll get back to that. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The word mist could also be translated as streams. Very difficult Hebrew to translate. It occurs only in two places in Scripture, here in the book of Job. 
very common, or not very common, but common enough in uh, ancient mythologies, which seem to indicate a common understanding of the underground of Earth, consisting of canals and ways to actually get water to bubble up, which is going to play an important role when we get to, of course, uh, the flood. We'll get back to that uh, in a moment. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and, and uh, uh, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, questions about e Eden in the east. Uh, can we identify this location? Does it really exist? Is it, is it made up? Um, and also questions, of course, about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So right now and for the rest of your life, please erase from your head the image of an apple tree. Okay? There is no apple tree implied here. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't know what kind of tree it is, but that's the tree that is going to play an important role later. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All, right, all these were in the garden. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Dilium and onyx stone are there. Uh, don't really know what Pishon is. Possibly the Nile. Possibly another river which has been, um, uh, well, uh, satellite imagery identified a, an, an ancient riverbed in Saudi Arabia that kind of joins with the Euphrates and the Tigris. And this might be Pishon. But really we don't know. And we'll come back to that in a minute as well. Um, the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which flows around the whole land of Cush. And again, there are geographical difficulties with this particular one. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the four rivers is Euphrates. The Tigris and the Euphrates are fairly clearly identified. The problem is that they really don't join uh, anywhere together in the uh, way indicated here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Uh, you notice that um, God's command is first positive, not negative. You may freely eat of all the trees of every tree of the garden, including the tree of life. So, don't mix the two. The tree of life was never part of the prohibition. Man was allowed to eat from the tree of life. What he wasn't allowed to eat from was the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's going to be a lot of questions we're going to ask and we're going to answer as we go through this. Namely, why would God put something in the garden that he doesn't want man to eat? He could just have not put it in the first place. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Well, we just heard in all of chapter 1 that God said all the time, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And suddenly now he goes, it is not good. So what is that? How could God say it is not good? Is he indicating that he messed up somewhere? He wasn't able to actually do something right? Go back to that. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Well, that's great news. What's he got to do with the helper? It almost sounds like a commercial, right? Here we're talking about God wanting to make helper for fit for the man. And suddenly we have this whole thing about the animals and Adam naming them. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. You've you got to feel the irony a little bit here. So here you are. Put yourself in Adam's shoes for a second. You're standing right here and there's cattle, the cows, and there's sheep, and the rabbits, and pigs. And you're taking a wide look at all of this. You say, huh, uh, let me name all those things and now I'll realize there's really no helper for me in all of this. I mean, why does he have to go through the whole naming process before he realizes there's no helper for me in that? Do, do, do you understand? The verse isn't obvious. Why? why? It'd be like saying, it'd be like saying, um, you'll stand in front of a parking, okay, look at it this way. Let me put it to you in modern terms that you can relate to. You're looking for a wife, okay? You're looking for a wife, so because you're looking for a wife, you go to a car dealer and you stand out there in the parking lot and you start naming the cars and the trucks and the RVs and when you're done you go huh there is really a woman for me here that's what's going on I mean the folks who were reading this text were what what did they have around them animals they knew animals just as you know cars why would I mean is like Adam a slow poke he just couldn't get it. The text isn't obvious. Either it's really obvious, and what's the point of writing it, or it's not that obvious, and so what's the true meaning? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, uh, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There's a lot going on in this text. It's not as simple as it seems. And we'll have to, you know, stop and, and, and study it uh, a little bit in detail. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, we've read this text so often. But I mean, just imagine reading it for the first time. There's a huge disconnect here. He was just telling us about them, you know, men and women being created and all that good stuff. And then we, we, we're, we're here, we're talking about this, you know, poetic stuff. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And uh, therefore a man leaves his father and cleaves to his wife and they will become one flesh. And oh, by the way, they were naked and were not ashamed. One verse. This is it. Chapter 3, if you flip over and look at chapter 3, first verse of chapter 3, Nothing to do with this particular verse here. What's up with that? So, let's see how far we can go. 
Let's go through verse 1 through 4. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. Did you get already that God had done all this work? Did you notice the repetition? Let me read it again to you. I mean, if you react to the text properly, which means naturally, which means aware of your own reaction to the text, and not just taking it as, well, the text of the Bible is all way up there, and I'm just down here, and there's so much I don't understand, therefore I'm not going to touch it, which means you're really not entering into a lively debate with God, and therefore God will not open your hearts and give you the graces that He wants to give you then of course it seems all normal. But if you really, really, really read it, it sounds annoying. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. All right, cool. So far so good. That's a closure of what we've seen before. The work of creation is done. Okay, we're good. In our mentality, if I close something, it is to do what? It's to open something else, right? Sort of, you know, creation... One is done, now let's move to creation two. Except that, and on the seventh day, God finished his work. All right, well, I thought you just told me that. That the heavens and the earth were finished. That implies God finished his work, right? Which he had done. God finished his work, which he had done. It's like you're telling your kid, you finished your assignment, which you have done. Or you go to your uh, professor and say, here is my report, which I have done. I mean, well, what's the implication here? Well, is, is it that, that somehow we think that God didn't do it? I mean, chapter 1 didn't leave us any doubt, now did it? God said, and God created, and God said, and God did all this, right? What's the point of this repetition? Now wait, bear with me. It isn't once. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. I mean, there aren't 30 verses separating these two for me to forget. I just read it. Didn't I? Now you think it's enough? No. Let's not make really, really sure you understand it. So God blessed, blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it, God rested from all his work, which he had done. All right, how do you explain this repetition? Why is he repeating? He's establishing the covenant for men. Yeah, but there's no need for repetition. There's something else going on. You're, 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 you're on the right track, but there's something else going on. Yes? It's an allusion, to the allusion to the Trinity. Yes, but it's not the primary. Yes, but it's not a primary. Yes. That this is an affirmation that God is the only God who created? Yes, true. But secondarily, there's something that is really... So that the principal reason why this is repeated this way, which makes only sense when you put it into a liturgical context of praise and worship. That's what's going on here. This is a text that is not just read. It is the text that is sung as part of a solemn liturgy of giving glory to God, the Creator. Therefore, Scripture can't be separated from the liturgy. Scripture is made for the liturgy. Anytime you see this repetition coming through, 
immediately understand that what the intent here isn't just to report on a fact, which is what I was doing earlier. This text is not there to just report factually, in a cold fashion, God finished creation, which he has done. This text is there as a doorway into prayer. Right? You focus on the fact that God created everything. You focus on the fact that God is creator of everything. And you give him glory. Right? That's the purpose. That's the, pur- the first purpose. Everything else flows. What you said about the covenant. You said about precisely you know, uh, firming up in the mind the truth of that there is one God and only one God is also true. What you said about the Trinity for a Christian would follow. But the principal reason why it's repeated is because of that liturgical context. Yes? Yes. Poetry is one form of the liturgy. The liturgy, and you see in the Psalms, for instance, is one psalm that repeats constantly, right? You know, all creation give glory to God, for holy is His name. And repeat it, holy is His name. Those, this repetition isn't empty. The reason why we repeat those, these expressions is because they are filled with grace. Right, they're filled with grace and they bring us closely, closer to the source of grace. Sort of when we say the rosary. Those words are filled with grace. We're repeating them because in that repetition, there's truth that needs to penetrate our head. Just as water, that one water, one drop of water, that drop, that, that water, one drop after another can make a hole through a very thick slab of flintstone. And picture that very thick slab of, of, of flintstone being our hearts. We have hardened hearts. And that water is the work of grace that drips one, one drop after another. And the reason why it's one drop after another is because that's all that we can take. All right? God does not wish to break the flintstone. God wishes to give it life. So therefore those repeated Hail Marys, those repeated prayers... The repeated liturgy, Sunday after Sunday, is there to soften our hearts and to turn them into a heart of flesh. So always the liturgy and scripture are really intertwined. They're really together. We have to read scripture liturgically. We have to celebrate the liturgy biblically. We've got to do the two together, not separate one from the other. All right, now, of course, the seventh day... Um, the threefold repetition of seven, seven, seven. Uh, as I've, as you know, in Hebrew, in in in, uh, in Hebrew, and I've told you this a number of times, there is no way to say greater and greatest. You can't say great, greater, and greatest. In order to say greater, you have to say great, great. And if you want to say greatest, you say great, great, great. The threefold repetition means the absolute, the maximum. That's why God is. Holy, holy, holy. Right? That's what we say in the Trisagion. Holy, holy, holy. Three times meaning what? The holiest. Right? That's why you have this thrice repetition. Holy, holy, holy. And here you, sh- you, should, you see the, the number seven repeated three times to emphasize its importance. It is the most important. Why is it the most important? Um, because... The number seven, 
Shpa, which is related to the word, the word for Saturday, Shabbat or Shabbat, is the word you would use if you want to establish a covenant. To make a covenant is to seven oneself. All right? To seven oneself. Isn't just, it isn't to make a multiple of me. Understand this, the image here. It isn't an image to say, oh, I was one, now there was seven. There's more of me. If that's the intent, I would have said to, to, to tenth myself. Not to seventh myself, right? If the intent, if the intent was um, just increasing quantity, it would simply be um, more, you know, a greater number than seven. The intent isn't there for any uh, numerical advantage I may gain. It is the perfect number. It indicates harmony in the family. Right? So when I seven myself, I'm not just increasing in number willy-nilly. I'm actually getting to that perfect relationship with others. That's the covenant. Right? That's why you have the number seven. Incidentally, if you compare um, the division of time in a week of seven days to what other cultures did around the, uh, the Hebrews, the Israelites at the time, you would see that none of the other cultures used seven as a division for the week. It did not exist. This is peculiar to the Jews. It comes from them. The division in seventh did not exist. makes no sense. You can even divide the month in, in, in seven days appropriately. Right? It doesn't fall. You can't have 30 is not a, per, a perfect division. You can get a perfect division of seven if you take 30, which, is the, the, which was uh, thought to be the, um, the cycle of the moon. Right? So the, the cycle of the moon, the cycle of the sun, nothing fits seven. Makes no sense. And that's why no one else used it except the Hebrews. And there's a reason for it, because of the covenant. Alright? Now, the idea of rest, though, God resting, was common to other cultures. So, for instance, in the Egyptian creation account from Memphis, the creator God, Ptah, rests after the completion of his work. And likewise, the creation of humans is followed by rest for the Mesopotamian gods. Um, and the reason why in the, in the, the Mesopotamian gods can rest is because humans now can do the chores that they were doing before. So the rest of the gods follow from the fact that humans now are doing the work of the gods. But in the, in the Genesis account, God is not resting from something. The purpose of these verses we just read is not to tell us that God has just rested from the work He has done. In, instead, it is telling us that God is resting in something. He's taking rest in something. Go back to the verses and, 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 and um, focus on verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all His work, which He had done in creation. So God is blessing and hallowing and resting in the seventh day. Right? Specifically, that day. God did not bless and did not hallow these other days, the first six days. The seventh gets this treatment. Why? Because it is the day of the covenant. So therefore, the rest of God is really a celebration of love. Because in that rest, God will enter into a covenant 
with his creature. There is another implication. The fact that God rested on the seventh day means that the a day of rest is an integral part of creation. To rest on a specific day is not man's invention. It is intended to be part of creation. Therefore, any time a society moves away from a day of rest, where people do not labor, they're moving away from the intended, from the intended, um, the intended way in which God wanted things to work in the first place. So, any time we don't have a day of rest, we have effectively a. Um, an abnormality, something is wrong, and we all feel it. So Sunday is supposed to be a day of rest. So on Sunday, what do we do? We hallow and bless Sunday because we go to Mass. That's how we do. We start with Mass. And after that, what do we do? We celebrate the covenant by focusing on what? The family. The family. Not by doing Bible studies, not by doing any studies of any kind, not by fixing the garage, and not by doing all the work that we need to do on, that we can do during the week on Sunday, like washing and drying and cleaning and meaning not resting, but indeed by resting, which is to spend time as a family, with friends, enjoying each other's presence. That's the purpose of Sunday. Unfortunately, the culture we live in has stripped Sunday from its meaning and has turned it into a day of work. A day of work. When God blesses Sunday and hallows it, and when we treat it as a day of work, you understand how the covenant is working, and you understand that we're not on the blessing sides of the covenant, we are on the cursed sides of the covenant. Right? The blessing is taken away and replaced by the curse, which is what? By the sweat of your brow shall you make ends meet. I'm paraphrasing here the curse that is to come. This is the first use, this is the, this is the first time where we see the, the use of the word holy. He hallowed it. So what is the first thing that God has hallowed? Time. Time is holy. Time is holy. What does it mean that time is holy? It means that time is part of this cosmic liturgy where everything is praising God. Right? Time is to be used not just in a good way, in a holy way. Meaning what? Meaning that everything you do, every moment of your life... Every instant of your life must be lived as a moment of praise and thanksgiving and worship of God. So, all right, but we have to work, right? Yeah, so how, how, how can that work? Well, everything you do must be done for the greater glory of God. You are in a meeting and you are, you are upset because this person is uh, annoying you. 
you can make this time holy by asking you got an angel to help you by by trying your best to do what is right you are trying to photocopy a report that your boss needs in five minutes and the photocopier breaks that's the moment where you say praise be to god god this is part of your design help me do your will you've made time holy you're driving and you're stuck in a um, huge jam because somebody up front didn't was careless in his driving and, and, and got into an accident that could have been avoided had this person drove more carefully. And now you're going to miss supper, you're going to get laid home, and you're already tired, and there was an important event that you wanted to attend, and you're not going to be able to attend it. That's the time to make this time holy. Pick up your rosary, say the rosary. Now, let's talk about one of the unholiest activity that this generation likes to engage in. It's called worshipping the tube god. Almost every family, including Catholic families, worship the tube god. These days, the tube god had lost quite a bit of weight. He's very thin and flat, but he hasn't changed much. And they all sit reverently in front of the tube god, and they sacrifice his bags of popcorns and chips on the altar of the tube god, and they watch, they watch inane things. They watch funny programs that can be irreverent, that can be unholy, because they're funny. They watch news which are made out of gossip and slander because they're funny. They have just stripped away holiness from time by worshipping the tube god. Every second of our lives is going to be accounted for. Put differently, when you stand before the throne of Jesus Christ, the moment of your death, you are to render account of every second of your life. Why? Because God hallowed it. Because God made it holy. Every second. If you say, I'm wasting time, it's tantamount to idolatry. Did you know that? If you're wasting your time, it's tantamount to idolatry. Because you are not rendering to God that which is God's time. There's nothing that you and I can do which is just to waste time. Every second of our lives must be useful, good. That's how we ought to live. So guys, and I say guys because I haven't had much gals come up with this plan. It's the guys who come up with this plan. You know that scheme? I want to be rich when I'm 45 and I'm going to retire. And retirement means there's a long chair on a beach somewhere, and that's how I spend the rest of my life. If you want to be a true Christian, put a big X on that long chair. Well, yeah, you can have that long chair for a week, maybe, or two, just so that you can refresh yourself. That's fine. 
but 365 days of your life sitting on the beach doing nothing, that sand is going to get hotter and hotter and hotter and will keep on getting hotter for the rest of eternity. You want to retire from doing the work you're doing right now? Fine, but it shouldn't end with, I can stand on the line and then do nothing. It should be, and then... I'm going to take care of orphans. And then I'm going to help kids be educated in Iraq. And then I'm going to do this. I'm going to make my time holy. There is no such thing as wasted time if what you're doing is for the good of others. Whether you're a doctor, whether you're an accountant, whether you are a software engineer, whether you are a nurse, whether you're a teacher, a mom at home, if every second of your life is spent Lovingly, for the greater glory of God, you are sanctifying yourself and you're making others holy because you're giving God the glory. This is the way of St. Therese of Lisieux. So then creation, therefore, is not a purely physical event. Creation is not just about the physical structure of the universe. Creation is also liturgical because of this holy day that happens to be the seventh which has been sanctified. So God has raised the natural order to a supernatural reality, which will become fully accessible in the Mass. Fully accessible in the Mass. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11, Moses, speaking to The Israelites tell them, remember the Sabbath. And he goes on to say, six days you shall work, but on the seventh you shall rest. You shall rest. Interestingly enough, in the commentary, the Jewish commentary, uh, Rabbi Simeon says, he blessed it, meaning the Sabbath, through the manna, that on all other days of the week there should fall for the Israelites an omer for each person. Whereas on the sixth day, there should fall twice as much of that bread. So too, he sanctified it through the manna, that it should not fall at all on the Sabbath. What he's trying to say here is that he's effectively doing a spiritual reading of the book of Genesis in light of the law. And he says that God gave the the, the Israelites the manna every day, one omer, one quantity, a portion to their need. But on the Friday... He gave them the double portion, one for Friday and one for, sa- for Saturday, the Sabbath. Because they should not go work collecting the manna. They should not work for their food. And as you can see from the, from the account of Eden, this is therefore the Sabbath is an indication of the return to Eden. Because in Eden, man did not work. The trees provided him with everything he needed. Therefore, in a sense, in Eden, every day was the Sabbath, because there was no need for him to work. So therefore, the Sabbath is a return of man to Eden on a natural order. Now, of course, that now is raised one level up with the liturgy, because the manna, right? So in other words, the rest on the the Sabbath in Genesis points to the manna, and the manna itself, of course, points to the Eucharist, which is our true rest. 
which is our true rest. St. Augustine says, O Lord, our heart is restless until it rests in you. Until it rests in you. Right? So the liturgy, therefore, Mass is our true rest. It's in the liturgy that we can rest. And if it is so difficult for us to do so, it is because our hearts are hardened. Our hearts are attached to the ways of the world. And we may not be working diligently to truly detach ourselves from all that which prevents us from resting. Ever, ever watch kids playing video games? They can be playing the video games on end for hours. 10 hours, 12 hours, 18 hours. When they stop playing the games, what happens? Restless. Sleep. But what happens to them? Are they happy and content and full of energy and ready to go and help their neighbor? Exhausted. Or they, go, they slide a little bit into a mini depression because now they're out of that excitement of the game and back to everyday life. It was to a point where a colleague of mine told me he was playing this multi-generational game on the internet where a whole bunch of people were, were subscribing to it and forgot what the name is. But he spent a year, one year of his life, planning with 30 or 60 other people, people he never knew, planning an attack on a dragon in a cave. <laughs> yes, yes, all on the computer. One year. And they did this attack, and it had to be coordinated down to, a, down to sub-second. So if any one of those 30 guys did not do what they were supposed to do, on a sub-second basis, the dragon would kill all of them. And, they're and they succeeded. So I asked him, so, so now what? He looks at me, what do you mean what? Well, you, you guys succeeded. Yeah, I know. We just keep on going to another cave. There's no rest. There's no end. There's no satisfaction. It's the same thing with people who collect money. People who don't collect money think that people who collect money rest. Actually, they don't. The more money they have, the more worry they have. Because they need to invest this money. They can't let it sit. They can't let it just sit. And the more they invest it, the more they have to invest it. And there's no point where somebody can say, I'm rich enough. There's no rest in material things. There isn't. There's only rest in God. That is why Mass is so essential to our life. Without Mass... We've got nothing. This text also points to something very interesting. It's subtle, but it's there. When you understand that God hallowed and blessed the Sabbath, you understand that there is a liturgical and sacramental uh, dimension to creation. But when you look what happens in Eden a little bit further, that is not present. Eden doesn't have that liturgical and and sacramental dimension. It is fundamentally natural. You understand? So by reading this, you can infer already that whatever God gave Adam in Eden was not 
the real McCoy. It was a first gift, but it wasn't the last. Because it was purely natural. And if you keep that in mind, you understand why God is going to say what He says a little bit later. Right? God has not revealed to man the beatific vision. Man does not know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and sees the Trinity as the Trinity is. Right? Even in Eden. Now, the verse... In verse 3, where we read, God rested from all His work which He had done in creation. That particular verse, this, this sort of smooth English, English conceals a difficulty in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, this would read, all His work that God created to do. All His work, God rested from all His work that God created to do. Awkward. Awkward, all right? But it, it conceals a truth. So, for instance, Ibn Ezra Radak, a commentator, an ancient commentator, understood the final verb, to do, as connoting for man to continue to do henceforth. All right? This view, of course, was not, was not shared by all. So, for instance, two other rabbis, Ibn Jana and Ramban, connected the final verb with the preceding seized, thereby taking to mean he ceased to perform all his creative work. But the interesting piece for us is that effectively, with the foreknowledge of the fall of Satan that had happened before the creation of man, and with the foreknowledge of man's own fall, the work of creation was not finished. Even though God rested on the seventh day, his work of creation was not finished. It will be finished and truly finished on the cross. It is finished. It is accomplished. That's when creation is truly accomplished because only then is man raised to become the divine child of God. That's why the fathers always call the fall of Adam the happy fall. The happy fall. Because without the fall of Adam, Christ may not have become man and may not have opened the, the gate of heaven as it is now. So God, when Christ became man, He did more than what was deserved. He didn't just move us from being slaves to Satan back to where Adam was to enjoy a natural um, a natural um, beatific um, uh, life, living here happy on earth, he actually moved it completely to the other side by making us true children of God, meaning that he transforms our humanity into his divinity. Okay? So that's kind of concealed in this text. If um, we were to take God created to do, uh, to mean that man has yet to do more. And the reason why we can look at it this way is because of the work of co-creation. Obviously, the, cre the work of God is not finished because as every child is created, God infuses a soul into this child. Hence, the work of creation on God's part 
continues in cooperation with men until the consummation of the ages. So we have basis to look at that verse to really mean that there was still work to be done and that the hallowing and the rest of God wasn't meant to say that God had nothing further to do. Rather, it was meant to say that that particular day was a day of rest and celebration. All right. Verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Verse 4 through verse 6. So first we notice the inversion of the expression heaven and earth to earth and the heavens. And the reason why this is doing done so is because now the focus switches from the heavens to the earth. Earth now becomes the focus point as you can see from the next two verses. The other important element that we see here is the first use of the word Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God in, your, in the English translation completely takes that away. But in the Hebrew you have the word Yahweh Elohim. Remember, Yahweh is the name that God gave Moses on, in the burning bush. When Moses asked him, what is your name? He said, I am that I am, Yahweh. Elohim is a generic name for Lord. That's why you see the expression, Lord God, given in the English. Although it really detracts from the, 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 the power behind it. Okay? This expression appears 20 times in the present narrative. 20 times will you see Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And once in Exodus 9.30. Once in Exodus 9.30. And it is exceedingly rare in the rest of the Bible. Exceedingly rare in the rest of the Bible. That you would find the two together. So, one commentator points out that this is a way to say that the that the transcendental God, right, Elohim, is the same as the immanent God, Yahweh. One God. True. But there is, I think, more profound reason. That is because throughout the narrative, throughout the narrative, God reveals himself to man because man has not yet broken the covenant. Once man breaks up the covenant, you'll see this expression dwindle and in fact man will forget who God is and it takes the revelation of Moses to bring it back to a small group and that will be kept alive barely throughout the history of Israel until the revelation of Jesus Christ until Christ comes so it's important for us to understand that the narrator is indicating that this was a period where man knew God in simplicity and innocence, in that this was lost. We then meet this long interim sentence, which is, uh, when no plant of the fields was yet. So in essence, verse 4, in the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, and then when we go to verse 7, we get to the creation of man. But between verse 4 and verse 7, the creation of man, there's this whole interim that talks about the field, and no herbs have grown, and etc., etc. And why is that? Well, because, um, again, this is a, a conversation that is going on between the Hebrew writer and the Babylonian texts. If you go back and read the Enuma Elish, 
you will see that it has the same structure and the same repeated use of not yet. So in this specific text here, we have on the day, and then we will have not yet and not yet. Hmm? And then we get to the creation of man. In the Enuma Elish, you have the exact same structure. So obviously, the author is writing this text as a liturgical text, because the Enuma Elish was part of a liturgy, and obviously, he is working, he's writing it with an apologetical view, defending the faith from the Babylonian belief. All right? It's the subtext that tells us what was the pers- purpose of the text in the first place. Now, we know that on the third day, God created all the plants, and yet here we're on the sixth day, and there are no plants in the field. First, the business of the field. Um, the field is a place where man works. Man was always seen as what? A planter. Somebody who actually works with the field. Plant things. And so the field was not planted yet because nothing has grown. So how do we reconcile six and three? One simple explanation to, be, to reconcile both is that the, day, the third day is really speaking about the potency. So the ability to bring forth was given by God to the land. But nothing had yet sprouted. And it is only here that we start to see this happening. Okay? Now this mist, um, as I said, is something that comes forth from the ground. Something that was shared by ancient uh, civilizations and our understanding of the underground system of waters. And uh, the, the author is using the same imagery to say that God had a way to bring forth life even though Rain has not yet fallen. The point of the rain not falling yet isn't about a natural meteorological event. It is about grace. It's about grace. And we'll understand that in a minute, why this is all about grace. So, as I said, this watering system is difficult to translate. It occurs only in Job, chapter 36, verse 27, which indicates the... um, um, indicates that the text of Job is also a very ancient text. All right? And it also occurs in the Sumerian myth of Enki and Ninursarg, where there is a mention of a watering system also that comes forth from the earth. So again, you see that this text was not written in complete isolation from the cultures around them. It was a dialogue, much like the encyclicals of the, our Holy Fathers today are mostly a dialogue with the world and a commentary on the world. This is also have, have, has the same purpose. So, as I said, rain is not just about natural event, but a source of blessing for man. And in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, you will see where God says, I will give you rain in its proper time, which is the blessing. But there's also another reason why rain is important. Um... We will see that as we go through the following verses. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breath into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living being. Okay, so um, the word dust is actually synonymous with clay. That's why this business of the mist is important. In other words, it, it wasn't just from dust as in you know, grains of sand, of grains of small particles, that God made man. He actually made him out of clay. 
Well, the first reason is, again, due to this relationship to other cultures, using the same imagery, the same anthropomorphisms of God. For instance, in the Egyptian art, the god Kunum is shown before a potter's wheel, busily fashioning man. So the understanding that God was fashioned from clay was, was a shared image. And also in a book called The Wisdom of Amen M. Opert, in chapter 35, Amen M. Opert, it's an Egyptian text, it is stated that man is clay and straw, and the God is his builder. And likewise, Mesopotamian texts repeatedly feature this notion, and the same is found in the Greek myth about Prometheus, who created man, and about Hephaestus, who molded the archetypal woman. So in all these myths, you see that the gods fashion man out of clay. Very typical, very um, uh, common image. So the, the holy writer of scripture is not running away from culture, is not sort of saying everything in this culture is bad, I can't touch anything. He actually picks also images that are in common use, which his audience was familiar with, but puts them to the right use, to expressing the truth about God. And he does that in astonishing ways, as you will see going through this text. Um, the Torah states that the dust was taken from the same spot where later on the temple will be erected. Now, there's a really interesting idea why they say that. Now, whether it's true or not, obviously there's no way for us to figure out it could be true, could not be true, right? Um, but there is a fundamental reason why they're saying that. There's a fundamental reason which is very important to us. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 24, the Lord says, An altar of the earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings. An altar from the earth you shall make for me. Why specify an altar from the earth? What kind of other altar can you make? I mean, what are the choices? An altar from Mars? An altar from Venus? You can't make an altar from the sea. You can't make an altar from fire. And you can't make an altar from air. It is going to come from the earth. Why specify an altar from the earth? Okay? Now, there is another verse which Jesus, which St. Paul, in the letter to the Hebrews, puts in the mouth of our Lord. Hebrew chapter 10, verse 5. Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body hast thou prepared for me. A body hast thou prepared for me. Um, peculiar language to speak of a body prepared. Put the two together. What is the body made of? The clay of the earth. What is the altar made of? The clay of the earth. What is then the purpose of the body? To be an altar of sacrifice for God. Do you understand? That's why Jesus said what he said. His body is the altar. You remember we say the altar is, is, we bow before the altar because it represents our Lord and the cross. That's why. There's this commonality between the altar and our bodies. An altar is made to offer sacrifice on it. 
our body is made to offer sacrifice. There's a profound truth about our reality. At the end of the day, there is one very important truth. For those of you taking notes, I'd like you to write it down. It may not make complete sense to you, but it, or it may make a lot of sense to you. But as you, as you progress uh, in your spiritual life, it will make more and more sense. More specifically, as you have a deeper appreciation of your sins, this will make a lot more sense. And this business of the altar will become very logical. And that is the following. In a, in a profound sense, in a profound sense, a man rejoices only in his sufferings. We rejoice only in our sufferings. Because when confronted with the reality of our own sins, when we see the depth of our own sins, and we see not just with the logical understanding, but with, a, with a, the understanding of someone who, who has gone through that experience, then we truly appreciate the price that Jesus paid on the cross. And when we appreciate, appreciate, as in fully realize, the price that He paid, then we are glad to suffer out of love for Him. And therefore, the only joy that we have is the suffering born out of a thank you we give Jesus back. For we realize that we are so indebted to Him that our sins merit us hell. And when we realize that, and we realize how patient He is, how merciful He is, how loving He is, how instead of consigning us to hell, He continues to encourage us, sending forth His Holy Spirit, sending forth His guardian angel, giving us words of encouragement, and helping us along the way, helping us pull ourselves back up, helping us move forward, even in those moments where we would not want to, even in those moments where we would be tempted to despair of ourselves because the view of ourselves stinks. He keeps on giving from Himself in ways that truly surprise us and touches us profoundly. And then we are glad to offer Him sacrifice. And no longer would we ask, why is this happening to me when a disease, an illness, something that is considered evil happens to us. Instead, we say, thank you, Lord, because I deserve far worse. We get to know a true, we get to have a true appreciation of who we are. This is what's hidden in these words. This is why Mass is so important. When you look at this altar, ask yourself this question, what have I come to offer you on this Sunday, my Lord? Which little sacrifices I've done this week to join to your sacrifice on the altar? Is my garden angel walking to your altar empty-handed, or does he come with a golden bowl that contains my repentance, my sorrow, and some small sacrifice I've done this week? I smiled to my sister, even though I felt 
um, dot, dot, dot. I, I got up in the middle of the night and I brought my wife a glass of water even though I felt like sleeping. And I even managed to do it with um, a sense of charity in my heart. I changed that diaper even though I didn't feel like changing it. Some small token of my love I've shown you this week, my Lord, and I'm bringing this to your altar. So that's why the dust is us. You understand? We on our own are dust. Remember, O oh man, you are dust, and the dust shall return. The, the, this mist is the grace that mixes with the dust and gives it form and makes it ready to receive the breath of life. So God is just as concerned about our bodies as He is concerned about our soul, even, but ultimately it's our soul that He really cares about because He wants to save us. But he is concerned about our bodies also. He knows our ailments, our difficulties, our pains, our sorrows, our, um, the effort that we're making either to lose weight or gain weight or um, grow hair or whatever. He doesn't laugh at all of those. He understands them. He made us with dust and grace. And He loves us. Now, the interesting thing is that Adam, man, comes from what? Adama, earth. Adam is taken from Adama. This is very important. We have, in, in, our, in being created with a body, a real connection to earth. We don't call Mother Earth, Mother Earth, Earth is not a mother because Earth has no soul. That's the wrong image. We don't, we're not devoted to Earth, but we are connected to Earth in a real sense. That is why it is so important for us to be able to break away from cities made of cement and walls and mechanical things and go and walk in nature. There is a real fundamental necessity because we're made out of this nature. Okay? It's, it's an important thing. It's an important element. Therefore, we must preserve earth. We must be good stewards of earth just as we are good stewards of our bodies. That's an important lesson. doesn't mean that we put earth above man. It doesn't mean that we're going to starve people because there's a fish dying somewhere. Right? That's folly. That's going to the other extreme. But neither do we go and just kill 150 bisons because we like the sports and leave their bodies to rot on the plane. That is not acceptable. We must be good stewards of, of the planet. So the human becomes a living being, Adam, and he's inextricably connected to Adama, the living earth. Right? The living earth. And so, earth bringing forth life in forms of trees and plants is a constant reminder of man's fertility. Earth is fertile because it's a constant reminder of man's fertility. When God says that rain is a blessing, He means by that that fertility is always a blessing. By, by the means of rain, earth 
yields its fruits. So rain represents fertility. Rains represent the work of grace in the soul of man. St. Teresa of Avila, in her autobiography, talks about the soul as a garden and the four ways in which the soul may be nourished. If you have not read the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila, I really recommend you read it, especially if you're a woman. She's an amazing writer, an awesome thinker, a doctor of the church, and she has much to teach all of us, especially about prayer and about the love of God. So, very powerful reading for those of you who have not perhaps really engaged into in spiritual meditation. She would be a great master. And in her work, she speaks of the soul as being a garden and the best way in which God can water the garden is through this gentle rain. This gentle rain. The dust of the earth, the commentator will, some commentators think that the dust was taken from the four corners of the earth so that when man dies, earth shall receive him, but also indicates the universality of man. Man everywhere is, is born from the same dust, the same clay, and he is therefore equal to all of his brethren. Now, Eden... Um, let's see now. Yeah. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Uh, I suppose I did a jump here. Yes. Yeah, no wonder. I was at verse 7. I was wondering, wow, I'm, I'm moving a good pace here. Okay. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Um, so, first, Eden is in the east. That's why, that's why the three, um, the three um, uh, big religion tends to pray towards the east. That's why man is easted. The compass points to the north, but the heart of man points to the east. Okay, the east is also where the sun rises. Right? Which is an indication of a symbol of the resurrection. Alright? The name Eden, which appears in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 3, in Ezekiel 28, 13, and 31, 9, and 36, 35. And in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 3, don't have to, the time to go through all of this, recalls um, the feast of the senses, prosperity, and beauty. It is truly about natural happiness in all its dimensions. All the things that feed the senses, all the things that are natural, all the things that are beautiful. What you won't find there is a bank, or a cell phone, or a laptop. None of that exists. Okay? Because in his original state, man needed none of those. Technology, and I'm, I'm a great proponent of technology, is fallen man's crutches trying to go back to his original state. That's what technology is all about. It's a crutch to help us to go back to the original state that we lost. And we'll talk more about, more about man's original state 
next week in detail. And out of the ground, <clears throat> so, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. So, the garden isn't a vegetable garden. It is more like a park, a beautiful place that is harmonious, that is peaceful, and that is perfectly seated to the state of man. Notice, God doesn't instruct man to plant the trees. Usually, in all the other mythologies, and this is striking, all the other mythologies, even though they talk about man being made out of clay, would put man in the service of the gods. Man do things to serve the gods. Here, it's the other way around which recalls what? The Last Supper. The Last Supper. It is God that serves man. God knows the need of man. He could have given him right, the acorns and all the other grains and say, go ahead, plant them, and I'll take care of watering it. He could have let him do something. But he doesn't. He does it all for him. And he doesn't just give him trees which are just good for his body. He also gives him the tree of life. Meaning what? Meaning that through this tree of life, whatever it is, we really don't know what it was. Through this tree of life, man reached immortality in his natural state. Man was not created to die. Man was created to live forever in his natural state. So God created a place where man did not need to work, did not need to sweat, where he would not be sick, ill, grow old, die. Where his body was not subject to the weather. Where his mind was in perfect control. Where he didn't need any of the technology that we have to shelter himself from the weather and for... None of that affected him. And he could live forever. Forever. And he knew it. All of that was known to man. It wasn't kept hidden from him. This is why anybody who thinks somehow to recreate paradise on earth, got some news for you folks. It's been tried by the best. Adam and Eve, and they flunked. Doesn't work. Can't do it. If they couldn't do it, and they were perfect, in a state of perfect, um, they were in, in, in a state of perfection, how can we, who are in a state of original sin, pretend that we would ever create paradise on earth? So the tree of life, as I said, its purpose was to feed man. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is something we need to talk about next time because I really need to, to go a little bit further before we, we engage into this. What I want to leave you with right now is that when God created Eden, it wasn't something that he needed to do. All of earth was very good. 
God rested on the Sabbath after creating all of earth, all of earth was very good. But that's God's nature. He went the extra mile. He didn't just want to give Adam all of earth, which was very good. He wanted to give him the best of the best. And he did it himself. He served Adam. Why? Because God delights. He delights in life. God delights in seeing us happy. In seeing us happy. God wishes us to be happy, but truly happy. Which means in Him, united to Him. Because apart from Him, there is nothing that will make us happy. Go home, put a list of, on, your, on a piece of paper, write down the top ten things you think will make you happy. Write down the top ten things you think will make you happy. And then, for each one of those top ten things that you're writing, that you think will make you happy, I want you to try and write three things that will cause you to be unhappy. And if you put your mind to it, you won't just find three things that will make you unhappy. You'll find ten. Put differently, try to find the perfect thing that will make you happy. Funny, isn't it, when you go to school, nobody asks you this question? Your kids go to school, and you decide to take this program or that program or this program. Most of you, we ask you, why taking this program? Most of you will say, oh, I don't know. I might be able to find a job or something like this. Why, why do you do it this way baffles me. I mean, when you want to go on vacation, you don't just get in a car and start driving aimlessly. What do you do? You know where you're going to go. I'm going to go to Paris. And then you move backward. You plan it. Backward. I'm going to go in Paris from such date to such date. In order to get there, I'm going to need a, uh, uh, an airline. Okay, now you can find the airline. Then you're going to find the car. You're going to find what you're going to do. You plan everything meticulously. But when it comes to these important decisions in our lives, I'm just going to go to college. I just talked to somebody who spent 11 years in college. Great. Why are you in college? More importantly, do you know what makes you happy? Really happy. And if you don't, why aren't you asking that question? Is it because you don't think that something will make you happy? You just resigned yourself to accept life as sort of a, a sequence of distraction from one to the other without ever being happy? Is that life? Ask yourself this question. What makes you happy? Think it through. And if you really think it through, you might come up with some surprising answers. So, this account of creation is about a God that cares, that goes the extra mile, that had thought about what he would give to his creature and give him the best, the absolute best. Think about that and ask yourself this question. Well, if he gave Adam the absolute best, why did Adam betray him? And if Adam betrayed him when he was given the absolute best, what would I do if God gave me what right now I think will make me happy? What would I do? As you can see, a good life 
a good life starts and ends with prayer. Because only God knows the human heart. And only God can shed light on a human heart. God bless you. We have time for questions. Yes, same. Yes, sanctified. Hallowed, sanctified means the same thing, holy. Uh, Kadush is the, that's the uh, Hebrew. Uh, sanctified, sanctus is the Latin for the same word. Yes, this, whether they came from Mesopotamia or Egypt or what have you, think of it more as a melting pot in which many of those stories circulated, just like today. And so the holy writer had no qualm in using images which are common and familiar to everyone, but it isn't just that the story came from this or that, but the fundamental view which was really striking and unique to Scripture, which you will not find in any other stories. Yeah, that's an important point. Thank you. Yes. Out of Eden, yes. What happened to Eden? Oh. Uh, obviously, if Eden was indeed a physical location, it disappeared. It was just completely closed up. Right? There is no specific place that we can say this is Eden because it represents a reality that is before the fall. And with the fall, even nature was affected. So we can't really say any specific location today points back to Eden. It's a completely different reality we, we can't even understand. What is the tree of life? What is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? We, we don't have any concept for these, for these realities, whatever they are. Yes. Oh, Yes. Uh, resting on Sunday doesn't mean you don't prepare food. You may have prepared food on Saturday for Sunday. So you do most of the work on Saturday for Sunday. Uh, having said that, if you have visitors that show up on Sunday that were not expected, you go ahead and prepare food. It's the law of charity. right? That's an important element. Uh, going on restu- to restaurants on Sunday is not a forbidden thing. The church doesn't tell us don't go to restaurants on Sunday. It just It's basically telling us to do it thoughtfully, not thoughtlessly. Why are we going on a restaurant on Sunday? Maybe because we want to give mom a break. Well, that's a good thing. But if we just go on the restaurant on Sunday after Sunday simply because we feel like it, and it's not put in the context of rest and charity, there's some work to be done there. But it's not about not working. Rest isn't about not working. Let's really understand that. Rest is about doing something that is fundamentally family-oriented. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.